throughout the ages, our world has amassed quite a catalog of religions, all of which are aimed at achieving some form of salvation or liberation or enlightenment. But of all the world's religions, there is one that stands out from the crowd because it really is altogether different. And that is that biblical Christianity, probably weren't too surprised to hear that this morning <laughs> coming from me. A biblical Christianity asserts that there is one God, one all-powerful creator God, who has eternally existed in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And while that assertion alone is enough to make biblical Christianity stand out from all the other religions, there's more. When it comes to the problem of evil in the world, when it comes to the problem of human corruption, and death, and a need for salvation. Biblical Christianity, unlike the world's religions, does not insist that the burden is on us to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and to overcome evil as we claw our way up to God and or enlightenment or whatever you wanna call it. Instead, biblical Christianity insists on something much more remarkable that God the Son, in the person of Jesus Christ, came down to us in order to raise us up to himself and for himself and with himself forever. Having been born of the Virgin Mary, Christ walked upon the earth to save us from our sin and to deliver us from the evil of death and to restore us to the abundant eternal life that he created us for. This again is enough to make biblical Christianity stand out from all the other religions, but then when we consider the manner in which Christ came to save us, it becomes all the more confounding. He didn't come to this earth as a domineering conqueror swooping in with a sword to defeat evil unscathed. He came to us in frailty, in meekness, in lowliness, putting on the flesh and bone of our, of our humanness. Christ laid his life down upon the cross to absorb the penalty for our sin and then he defeated the power of death altogether by raising to life over it. And now Christ sits at the right hand of power as the resurrected guarantor ensuring that all who recognize their need for him and believe in his name they will be saved unto everlasting life. This is the gospel message. And no matter how hard we search through the world's catalog of religions, we will not find a, a hope as glorious as this. We've got to pay much closer attention to this message. The writer of Hebrews exclaimed last week in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. We've got to pay much closer attention to this message or we are in danger of drifting away from it. 
If you're unfamiliar with the New Testament book of Hebrews, or if you're just joining us on this fourth Sunday of our sermon series, The Supremacy of Christ, some of the Jewish Christians to whom this letter was first written, they were beginning to drift away from the gospel message. They were retreating from the gospel way of life. And they were returning to their former ways of Judaism under the law of Moses that had been put into place by angels and had been put into place by angels for the purpose of revealing their need for the gospel. Ever since the gospel message was first declared by Christ himself, the gospel message and the gospel way of life has been met with strong opposition wherever it is preached. Devout Jews have considered it a stumbling block that leads to lawlessness, and unbelievers of every other ethnicity have thought the gospel simply to be silly or foolish, as Paul writes. Ever since the gospel was first declared, believers of the gospel have been persecuted, leading many including these Jews to whom this letter was first written, leading many to drift away from the gospel message. With this context in mind, and actually, before I even go there, it, making matters even worse for these Jewish Christians, they were beginning to, as, as they were retreating back into Judaism, they were beginning to judgmentally segregate themselves from the other members of their church, particularly Gentiles, who weren't submitting to the law of Moses. There's all sorts of issues happening, and it's with this context in mind that the urgent warning of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 becomes all the clearer We've got to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. In other words, brothers and sisters, don't take your eyes off the gospel. For if you do, you're flirting with spiritual peril. The writer of Hebrews ended last week, the passage we considered last week, he ended in in chapter 2, verse 9, by writing this, we see him, but we see him, Christ, who for a little while, that is during his incarnation, was made lower than the angels. Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And now, as we continue into Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, the writer of Hebrews is going to further unpack the glories of our salvation in Christ. I'd invite you to follow along as I read. Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. 
And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Our founder, our perfecter, our helper, our brother. May the name of Christ be glorified among us today. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen. My high school soccer coach was of a rare breed as far as coaches go. He was not only committed to pushing us to our highest level of play, he was committed to doing so right beside us as one of us. For every practice, he wouldn't show up in the work clothes that he'd worn all day. He'd show up in shorts and a t-shirt and he would sit with us and stretch with us. He would run laps with us and sweat with us. He would pass and shoot and even take water breaks with us. And when he would make an audible, he'd say, go and do this. Before we could even react to what he said, he was already leading the path. He was already doing it himself. And we would be scrambling to catch up. His style of coaching, you might say, was incarnational infinitely greater than my soccer coach however Christ suffered as one of us Christ defeated the foe that we most greatly fear and Christ is eager to help us endure as we await his return and that will actually be our outline for the remainder of our time I'll repeat that number one Christ suffered as one of us Number two, Christ defeated the foe that we most greatly fear. And number three, Christ is eager to help us endure as we await his return. I'll repeat those as we go. Number one, Christ suffered as one of us. In verse 10, the writer of Hebrews reminds the Jewish Christians and us that in the same way as us, and even infinitely more so, Christ suffered throughout his earthly life. Of course, he, he, he suffered the cross of Calvary, right? Where he made 
propitiation for our sins. And we see that word propitiation used in verse 17. And it means that not only did Jesus' death on the cross appease God's wrath against our sin, it also secured and completed our right standing with God forever. Took away our guilt and made us right with God forever. Here's what that, that word propitiation means for you. If you're a believer of Christ, here's what that word propitiation means for you personally. If you're in Christ, your deserved punishment for sin has already been served completely. There is no condemnation awaiting you on account of any of your sin, past, present, or future, and you have been made right with God forever. Full stop. Full stop. This glorious gift of salvation was purchased at a tremendous cost to Christ. And while the cross of Calvary is certainly the pinnacle of his suffering, he also suffered in another way that is in view in this passage. In verse 18, we're told that Christ suffered the pain of temptation. I don't know if you ever, you ever thought of temptation in that way. But temptation to sin is a form of suffering in its own right. And Christ suffered it as one of us. He actually suffered real temptation to sin and it was necessary for him to do so. It was fitting, we're told in verse 10, that the founder of our salvation should suffer real temptation because by it he would be made perfect. Now, before we run off into all sorts of heresy... Hold the phone by what it means to be that Jesus was made perfect. Christ has always been perfect. Perfectly sinless, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. But when he as a man faced and withstood the temptation to sin, it proved him all the more to be the perfect mediator to bring many sons and daughters to glory. As a human, as one of us, Christ passed the test that every one of us has failed since that moment when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. As a human being, as one of us, Christ passed the test of true obedience despite temptation. It was fitting that Christ should suffer and withstand real temptation because by it, he would be made the perfect representative to take our place on the cross that we deserve. Now, speaking of Christ's death on the cross, there is a sense in which his death was sufficient for every single sin of every single person who would ever live on this world. 
But there is also a sense in which Christ's death on the cross was only salvifically efficient for those who would be brought to repentant faith. For he who sanctifies, verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are to be sanctified all have one source. The NIV translates that this way. The one who makes people holy and those who are to be made holy, they're of the same family. This is why Christ is not at all ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Gosh, I love that. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. And in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me here. The writer of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8. And he's doing so to highlight that Christ was tempted and tried and crucified in order to save God's family. Verse 16, the offspring of Abraham, a.k.a. those who would be brought to faith in Christ. Point number one, Christ suffered as one of us. Now, let me just hit this for just 10 more seconds. Brothers and sisters, your Savior doesn't just hypothetically understand the troubles that you're facing. He doesn't just hypothetically understand what it's like to be tempted, what it's like to be dismayed by or even frightened by opposition. He doesn't just hypothetically understand what you're facing, what it's like to face those things. He actually understands. He actually understands because point one, Christ suffered as one of us. You won't find a savior like that in any of the world's religions. Number two, Christ defeated the foe that we most greatly fear. Let me paraphrase what the writer of Hebrews is explaining in verses 14 and 15. I think a paraphrase might help us to, to, to clearly understand it. Here's the paraphrase of 14 and 15. Because God's children are flesh and blood human beings, well, Christ likewise became a flesh and blood human being. And by dying as one of them, he not only set into motion the total destruction of the devil, he disarmed the devil's favorite weapon against God's children, and that is this, the enslaving fear of death. I'll say that again. Because God's children are flesh and blood human beings, Christ likewise partook of, he became flesh and blood a human being. And by dying as one of them, he not only set into motion the total destruction of the devil, he also disarmed the devil of his favorite weapon that he loves to use against God's children, and that is this, the enslaving fear of death. For the Jewish Christians who were the first to receive this letter, the devil was certainly using the threat of persecution and death to frighten them away from the gospel. In order to hold on to their homes, their possessions, their safety, they were 
letting go of Christ. And the fear of these things is understandable. It is. But what the writer of Hebrews is trying to remind them of, and and the Holy Spirit is trying to remind us of right now, is this. Christ, our forerunner, our founder, our brother, he drank the cup of death to the end and he rose to tell the story. In other words, death is not the end. It is not the end. Whether we die from old age or sickness or persecution, as God's children, when we close our eyes in death, we will awaken to see the face of Christ in real and resurrected life. Because Christ has defeated death, we don't have to live in the bondage of our fear of it any longer. It doesn't have to control us. Here's a bit of a lighthearted illustration on this one. When I was in college, on the weekends, some of my friends would go cliff jumping off this 65-foot cliff edge that overlooked a small lake near our school and I would go to hang out right but I am horrified of heights like you might even say deathly afraid of heights and yet this mysterious thing happened every weekend as I was just hanging out watching my friends leap off the edge of a cliff only to splash safely in the water beneath before climbing up and doing it again with these huge smiles on their faces, my fear of it all strangely subsided. It, it, it diminished. I was still afraid of heights, but there was something like, y'all are just loving this, and, 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 and none of you is hurt, and you're living to tell the tale, <laughs> And one day I jumped off it myself. Now I know that this illustration pales in comparison, but I do think that the writer of Hebrews is gunning for a similar effect in verses 14, 15, and even 16. Christians, you who may be growing weary because of increased opposition in this world, you who may be fearful of what it may cost you, look at Christ. Look at Christ, your flesh and bone savior who died and rose not just to defeat the devil of death, but to deliver you from the faith-wrecking fear of death. Let me ask you, you don't have to answer out loud. What is the thing you are most afraid of losing? on account of your devotion to Christ here in 21st century America, right? We're not at the place yet where we're being afraid for our lives or anything, but what's the thing that you're, you're most afraid of losing? Friends? Maybe family members? A job? A scholarship? Business partners? Social standing in our community? Respect? 
I think the first century Jews to whom this letter was written, I think they were afraid of losing those things too. And like them, we must constantly remind ourselves and one another what Jesus promises us in John 11 and Matthew 19. If you want to write the John 11, Matthew 19. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or property for my namesake will receive a hundred times more and inherit eternal life. That's a pretty good promise. Point number two, Christ defeated the foe we most greatly fear. And as we await his return, and on that day of his return, sweet mercy, Satan's sin and death will be utterly vanquished. They're already destroyed, but vanquished. Glory. Number three, until that, Christ is eager to help us endure while we await his return. You're not going to find this in any other religion either. Or the God who saves, God himself who saves is also the one who's saying, guess what, I'm here with you. I'm for you. I got you. In verse 16, the writer of Hebrews insists, surely it is not the angels that Christ helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, at first, it might seem that the writer of Hebrews just simply can't let off the drum of this angels thing, right? But let's remember, these Jewish Christians, they were reverting back to the law of Moses, which had been declared by angels. And the writer of Hebrews has already spilled a lot of ink trying to remind them, Christ is not like the angels. He's superior, infinitely superior to them. What's more is that at his incarnation, Christ didn't come as an angel, but these Jewish Christians, ever since their ancestors, they were expecting him to come in an angelic form. That's how the Messiah was being expected to come. He didn't come in the way they were expecting. Instead, he came as a man. Thank God he did. He was born a human being in the line of Abraham in order to save the offspring of Abraham. And thankfully, if you know your New Testament, Galatians 3.7 has already explained to us what the, or whom the offspring of Abraham is. And that is everyone of every nation and language who has brought, been brought to faith in Christ. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the risen son of God who died on behalf of your sin. You are an offspring of Abraham. And no one can shake you from that inheritance either. Christ had to be made just like the crown jewel of his creation. The crown jewel of his creation was not the angels. They long to look into what Christ was all about in coming in our life. The crown jewel of God's creation is humanity, is mankind. 
And he had to be made like his crown jewel of creation. He had to be made like them because he was to save them. Verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way in order for him to become their merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. This is huge. Under the Mosaic law, the high priests, they had to repeatedly make sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of everyone else. Bulls and goats and bulls and goats and bulls and goats and again and again and again every day, every month, every year. Bulls and goats, bulls and goats, blood, blood, blood. But Christ, but Christ, not only the better sacrifice, but the better high priest himself. The new and better high priest of all God's people from every nation. Christ, right now, with flesh and bone, still human and still God. Still, right now, in this moment. We can't see him in the heavenlies. Still. He sits at the right hand of God with ongoing faithfulness and mercy. I'll give you an example. Tomorrow, if the Lord gives it to you, you're going to sin. And when you do, Christ goes, Father, mercy, my blood, my blood, my blood, over every sin of their past, over every sin today, and every sin that they will commit, whether the, the sin of, of neglecting to do what God, you have told them to do, or, or doing what you've told them not to do, the sins of omission and commission, all of it, I plead, I'm faithful in this role as the high priest at your right hand, forgive him, forgive him, forgive her, forgive her, my blood has been spilled forever. So he not only offers his blood, but as a faithful high priest who is merciful, he can empathize, relate with us, and plead our case at the same time as both sacrifice and the priest. You cannot, I mean, you can't make this up. Christ, who lived and breathed and walked as one of us, is eager to help you endure while you, while I, await for his glorious return. If that doesn't inspire you to pray, I don't know what will. Knowing that he is eager, a flesh and blood Jesus, and we can't see, he's, he's glorified, we can't see, our eyes aren't, aren't made for that but he is really right now, real and active, pleading our case before the Father. If that doesn't inspire you to pray, he's eager to help. Help me, Lord, tomorrow as I go to work in an office space that is hostile. Help me. Believe that when you pray that prayer, he, he absolutely will. He'll go before you and hem you in behind with his Holy Spirit. Help me, Lord, I'm looking through the, 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 the news feed on my phone and it just is, there's Chinese balloons and there's this, that, and the, what in the heck is, ah, what is all this? I'm, a, I'm afraid. I'm honestly a little freaked out. Help me, please. Please help me. And he will. Help me, Lord, as I, as I, as I 
look through just counting the cost of what it looks like to bear your name in a society that hates your name. Help me, Lord. Following you is costly. Help me. He's eager to help you and me. He will bring us to the end after all. And it will be marvelous. Would you pray with me and we'll continue to sing. Father, I just want to circle the wagons again and just simply thank you for Jesus. For through him, we can know you. We can know you, Holy Spirit. We can know you, God. I thank you for Jesus who suffered as one of us, who defeated that which I most greatly fear. I'm always coming back to it, which is ultimately death. And he's also eager to help each one of us. I pray that we would lean on that help more, more. Lord, for any in here who have not really come to terms with this, that he or she is a sinner, and apart from Jesus, there's no hope of being reconciled to God forever for eternal life. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant to them a faith that begins today, that they would come up and even speak with me or one of the other pastors. And Lord, for us who are in Christ, I pray that you would make us all the more just absolutely astounded at what we have and that it would lead us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Doing and thinking and speaking and acting in ways, Lord, that reflect our love for you, which was is only made possible because you first loved us. And our love for each other, our sacrificial, caring, humble love for one another. This will save us from a multitude of sins. And Jesus, you ever plead our case. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.